Okay, good afternoon everyone. Can you hear me all right? Okay, I'll start off with an apology. I'm really, really sorry for dragging you along to a sessional meeting on Valentine's Day. Really sorry, but that's how the dates worked out. So thank you for coming. Today, I'm chairing today because um, we kind of forgot to arrange with um, one of the council members to come and chair the session. So um, I'm really here in my capacity as um, convener of the NHI task team. And the primary reason for having the, the sessional meeting is to provide some report back on the, um, the research that has been underway to support the developments around the, um, the NHI um, costing model um, that the Actual Society has been working on following the initial development that um, Deloitte was involved in. So my fellow speakers here um, this evening is um, Ashley, who is here in her Deloitte's capacity, because she is someone who wears many hats, and, um, and also Fatima is going to be talking through some of the research that they've been busy with. So I'm going to start with, by giving you a little bit of an update in terms of some of the, the developments um, and what we know, and I suppose more significantly what we don't know about um, what's happening with, with NHI. I don't really want to call it a debate, more uh, a process, because I think we can all accept that this is a path and a process that we are on, and it's just a question of, um, of how it, um, how it pro progresses. So I'm going to talk a little bit around that, and uh, particularly some feedback from a Treasury workshop that we were um, involved in in, uh, in December, which was really quite um, um, enlightening and, um, and encouraging from the point of view of the willingness to, um, to consider other points of view and, um, and particularly the access to international experts who presented at that workshop and we had the opportunity to, to present the model to them as well. And then I'll talk about the um, research initiatives that have been underway. You'll have seen the, the research tenders that were put up in um, July of uh, 2011, I think it was. And, um, and then, of course, the one research initiative is the, um, the supply side, which is the work that Deloitte has been busy with. So then Ashley's going to talk around some of the analysis that they've done, as well as um, different reimbursement strategies and how those can be considered in the context of NHI. And then Fatima is going to talk about the delivery models and, um, and mechanisms that have been researched in terms of um, more efficient use of existing um, resources and how this work is leading into updates to, um, to the NHI model. So to kick off, for those of you who haven't been um, party to this kind of um, process before, um, just to give you some background, in terms of, uh, of the national health insurance process, um, it's really to do with this policy objective of universal access, which is trying to expand access to quality healthcare services, whether those are publicly or privately funded, to, to everybody, and to kind of balance these objectives of, um, of equity and efficiency with, with broader access. So in terms of delivery model and considering the NHI as one such delivery model, the way in which it gets defined is by looking at the aspects around eligibility in terms of who gets to participate, um, funding, where does the money come from to pay for it all, um, pooling, how, the, how that money is, um, is held and distributed, and then the purchasing in terms of the, the, the purchasing of the services, and of course that's where the reimbursement mechanisms come into it. So based on um, the discussions that we have had with, um, with various um, stakeholders, it seems that all of this is really still up for discussion. Um, it seems that um, whereas initially there was a very strong focus on the single 
um, central centralized fund as the um, as the pooling mechanism that um, the the debate around having rather a multi-payer model which potentially could be based on the existing medical scheme system is not closed so that's something that's still open for discussion whether it's a single or multi-payer model um, the phased implementation, as you saw from the, um, the green paper, introduced the concept of this phased um, implementation, which was certainly something to be welcomed from the point of view of being able to, to take on something more manageable. Um, and it's, though it's not clear how this, um, how this phased implementation is going to work. Is it going to be from the point of view of different sectors of the population getting access at different points in time? Is it going to be on a regional basis? Is it going to be on a benefit basis? So we've seen, for example, that the, uh, the pilot sites um, where the funding is currently being spent is focused, are focused on, um, on, on primary care, but at the same time there is a revitalization program going on in the, in the hospital system as well. And then the sources of funding. Initially, the suggestion was that it was going to be um, the personal income tax was going to be the primary source of, uh, of funding, which, of course, um, our initial work showed was, was really quite problematic considering the size of the tax base relative to the size of the population to be covered. So alternative sources of funding and possibly a combination of other sources of funding seem to be currently under discussion, and this includes payroll tax using VAT as a, um, as a source of funding as well, of course, as the, um, the personal income tax. And then what about the nature of coverage? This was something where the um, international experts at, um, at this workshop that we attended in December um, was very interesting what they presented in terms of how benefit priorities had been determined in different countries where these kind of systems had been implemented and the process that they went through in terms of, um, of, of prioritizing the benefits. So we saw, for example, that um, in the green paper, I'm trying to think how many categories of benefits there were, but there were a lot. And, um, and so the question is whether you implement or whether you prioritize the primary care, the, the, uh, the secondary and tertiary care. And then, of course, the provider reimbursement models. And um, this is what's really given rise to a lot of the, um, the, re the research that we are reporting back to you today, is the suggestion that a risk-adjusted capitation model would be used. And, um, and there wasn't really much further definition or, or description in terms of what that actually means, what risks are going to be adjusted, how is the capitation model going to work, is it going to apply to all, different, uh, all the different categories of service providers. So that's something also that is still open for discussion. And of course the role of the medical schemes, which is why we structured the, uh, the model on a basis that the role of the medical schemes can be on a parallel basis, on a no-role basis, on a top-up um, basis, because this is still something that is open for discussion. So, as you've probably heard me say before, um, the Actual Society has been very careful in terms of their positioning of, um, of our role in, this, in these debates and discussions around NHI. I think, fortunately, the heat is kind of, the political heat is, is off this, and it's now more like rolling up sleeves and, and getting the job done in terms of implementing something that is going to expand access. And so the way that we have tried to, to position ourselves as, um, as the Actual Society is as an advisory role to the various stakeholders who are involved in these discussions. So if we can provide um, technical support and advice and particularly have the costing model as a scenario planning tool, 
then um, we can assist the stakeholders in terms of the, the more strategic level discussions. So the, the costing model, um, as, as you may well have, have seen up to now, is essentially a scenario planning tool. And the kind of things that can be adjusted is really the rate of, um, of implementation, that phasing of implementation over time, the population that's going to be covered, the benefits that are going to be covered, the role of the medical schemes, as I just mentioned, the benefit categories, much broader now uh, possibilities in terms of selecting and deselecting different benefit categories rather than just having three um, different sections. And then the supply side constraints, and this is a, a key area then that this work has been um, focused on, is that um, up to now the supply side constraints has really been based on a rationing approach to, uh, to looking at shortages on the supply side. And, um, and now this research will hopefully help us to, to become um, to, to look more broadly at, at ways in which the current resources can be used more efficiently rather than just using rationing to take that into account. And then, as I mentioned, the alternative sources of funding, different sources of, of, um, of tax funding um, over and above the, the personal income tax. So the structure of the model is essentially having a set of, of key assumptions that, um, that we, we have then um, implemented and we are now conducting research to, uh, to support those, uh, those assumptions. So the, the tenders that you saw, uh, that the work that's underway is around things such as utilization levels, um, service provider availability in terms of where they are, who they are, and what they can do, and also the costing, which is based more on a, a bottom-up type costing than a top-down from a, from a service level point of view. So in other words, the costing is based on the resources rather than on the services. Um, also looking more around the costs of, of delivery and, um, and also the process of delivery and then alternatives in terms of the, the benefit packages. Now one of the um, criticisms that has continuously levied at the, at the development of this model has been that our data is primarily sourced from the private sector. So initially it was medical scheme data and that was of course not by design but purely by the fact that that was the only data that was available and not just available but in existence. Um, because certainly accessing data on public sector utilization, it's not as if there's a large database somewhere that we can't access. It's often a case that the data simply does not exist on the kind of scale. So, so we are now looking at alternative data um, sources and of course making adjustments to the, the private sector data to take that into account, which is where the assumptions around utilization levels and supply side adjustments um, came in in the first place. And then the other um, point that we are currently debating is the extent to which we should accommodate regional variation in the model. Um, it's already a very large and cumbersome model, and, um, and so the question is whether we should start trying to break that down into um, to a district level. So at the moment our thinking is around... Um, around using the, having almost a district type analysis which then feeds into the, into the model rather than trying to incorporate that in the model itself. But certainly your comments and feedback on, on any work that you've done in that regard will be very useful. So the research initiatives, as I, as I mentioned, we had um, the, looking at the utilization levels because we had made assumptions around what the, uh, what the utilization levels would be in terms of, um, of people who previously hadn't had access to coverage or about whose utilization patterns we don't have information. Um, and of course those utilization levels are affected by factors like the burden of disease as well as trends in behaviors, whether people's um, trend, the, uh, utilization patterns will change as a, re as a result of having access to a system such as this. 
And then on the supply side, the resources, and it's certainly through the research that you're going to hear about today, it seems that although we do have supply side challenges, we don't necessarily have a supply side shortage because we can consider using our resources much more efficiently. Um, and I think that's quite uh, a key finding in terms of this, um, this research. And then the economic factors, which we um, have been um, working with, with other researchers on, particularly economics, and, um, and then uh, this particular area of interest for National Treasury, is looking more at the macroeconomic effects and the effects of productivity. So that's something that hopefully the outputs of the model will um, help to address. So some of the learnings that we were able to, to share and to, um, to hear about when we attended this uh, Treasury workshop in December were both from the, the research that we have done as well as um, research that the international experts were able to, to present to us. And one of the things that we found certainly in the work that we presented at the actual convention the year before last was that there can be unintended consequences to um, a phased implementation by, in terms of a, a gaps in coverage. So I don't know if you will have recalled that presentation. I think it might well still be on the, on the website. But one of the findings that, um, that the initial work that we did on a phased implementation was that you could find people coming out of coverage before the, um, the system is in place to, to take them on to alternative coverage due to affordabilities. Also, um, what was very clear from what the international experts presented at the workshop was that you need to have a simple front end in terms of the way in which people access the system. But for that to be simple, you have to have a fairly complex back end in terms of what's underlying that from a, from a, de a service delivery as well as a, um, an administration uh, point of view. Also, the debate around centralization versus decentralization, which is something that the Department of Health, I think, is grappling with at the moment um, in terms of the decentralized portions of, of healthcare delivery in the South African public system at the moment versus the, um, the centralized role. And then, of course, this is something that we as actuaries are, are well-placed to um, advise on and have experience with, is the, the, the effect of changes. So kind of reasonable expectations and how those are affected by changing from one system to another. And, um, and of course, the phased implementation gives you the opportunity to maybe make the best of what you do have and augment it rather than just um, throwing it all away and starting again. So some of the key issues that, um, that certainly have, um, have come to the fore in the course of this research is on the supply side that we need to be looking at ways of using re existing resources more efficiently rather than just looking at, um, at purchasing more resources. And uh, that includes obviously training and development plans in terms of, of, um, of the future, but also um, changes in the delivery models as they currently exist and possibly with, um, with regulatory changes required to support that and also the use of, um, of technology to, to make this delivery more, uh, more efficient. I think we're all aware of the kind of wastage that takes place in the, um, in the private sector. From a utilization, level, uh, utilization point of view, we have the situation that um, there's a need to manage expectations around what um, a national health insurance rollout and, and delivery actually means. And of course, from a utilization point of view, we continuously have the pressures of inflation, largely driven by technology, but also by um, changes in the burden of disease. And we're looking here at, um, at a population with um, very, very varying burdens of disease across different segments of the population. So the way in which a process like this is phased in um, is going to lead to different approaches in terms of prioritization.
So one of the areas of work, and um, Daniel Shapiro is working on this for his master's. I'm pleased to see Daniel here, so now it makes me very self-conscious about presenting his slide. But um, the, the utilization side, um, we can consider a framework such as this, which kind of illustrates that whenever you're dealing with a, a reform process, it's very dangerous to think that you can import a system from elsewhere. You can certainly learn from what has happened in terms of systems being implemented in different countries, but the unique combination of these factors is, is really what requires us to apply our minds to how we can use those learnings to, to make it work here. So what this, um, what this is showing is that you have basically your societal determinants there on the what is that on the left-hand side, um, which is around kind of the, 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 um, the way the expectations in, um, in society as a whole in terms of the, the levels of, of, um, of utilization. And then you have the, the systems as they exist, so the way in which the, the health system has, has operated, in our case, of course, the, the public and private split. And then you have the individual determinants, which is where you start looking at the individual disease burdens. And, um, and it's really the unique combination of those factors which then um, drives the, the utilization levels that the, that the system is going to experience. So it's very important that we, that we consider each of those things and how they operate in our environment rather than just thinking that we can um, import systems from elsewhere. Okay, so that brings us then to, um, to the Deloitte uh, project, which is really around the, the supply side, and, um, and first of all looking at, um, at modeling the supply side from the point of view of the appropriate categories of service providers and, um, and the, what, an appropriate way, what is an appropriate way to measure access to those um, service providers. And then looking at various remuneration structures in terms of what's the best way to, to um, remunerate the service providers in a way that's going to encourage the kind of, um, of, of behavior that we're looking for in the system. And then of course, very importantly, the capacity and how different delivery models can enhance the existing capacity. So I'm going to hand over to Ashley now, and she's going to take you through some of the, um, the background research. Okay. Um, thank you for being here today. Um, as Roseanne mentioned, um, the, the session we had with National Treasury in, in December was, was quite enlightening, because one of the aspects that we all were able to agree to is that we need to take the context within South Africa into account, look at the learnings, that we've been able to achieve and be able to understand within the various countries where these systems have been introduced and realize what is appropriate and applicable for South Africa. So um, within the rest of my section of the presentation, if you can please bear that in mind, and I, I will be referencing this um, continually, so um, apologies for mentioning it too many times. The first thing that I'd like to take us through is really some of the reimbursement strategies and just give a key overview in terms of some of the features applicable within these reimbursement strategies. So, as mentioned before, no size, there's no one size fits all. Within each of the facilities, there would it be a different approach that would need to be looked at. One would also need to consider the level of care and the appropriateness of the reimbursement strategy. Ultimately, what you would want is an alignment of incentives as well as trying to achieve the overall mandate and objectives within the facility itself. So what you may even find is an interaction of different reimbursement strategies being applied within one context, and I'll give you some examples of those. So if we look at some of the main reimbursement mechanisms applied within hospitals, the first is line item budgets. 
in essence, what this, what this is, is that you would have a specific budget that would be put available for specific um, aspects um, within your budget. So as an example, resources or technology and so forth. Within this particular item, what we may find is some um, the under provision of some um, services. They might actually end up referring to other providers. There may be some incentive to increase inputs, specifically when it comes to the end of the year where um, uh, entities haven't used the entire budget, they may then um, have an incentive to push up some of those costs. If we look at global budgets, there may also be an under provision of services, um, an incentive for that. Um, they may again want to refer to other providers, again an incentive to increase inputs, and there may be a mechanism to um, improve efficiency of, of your input mix. So if we have to look at the public sector, Overall, there is a national budget that is available, which is then assigned by National Treasury, which is then um, applied to the various provinces. But within that, there are specific budgets allocated to, um, to specific items um, within that delivery. So you would have your, your salary. So again, just looking at the public sector, there would be an interaction of both line item budgets as well as an overall global budget. So when looking at the strengths and weaknesses of each one of these strategies, it's important to understand that where those intercepts occur. Then per diem, where a, a fee is paid per night that you spend in hospital. Within this, of course, there would be an incentive to increase your remuneration, would be increase the number of nights that you stay in hospital. There, if you have a specific um, allowance for, for your fee, you may, of course, have a, an incentive to reduce your input costs. And within this, if you have a specific fee that's paid to you per night, let's say a thousand rand, as a facility, you may realize there are certain efficiencies that you can introduce if you are able to redesign your facilities. So we realize that the cost involved in delivering a, a, a private hospital bed is a lot more expensive than that of, let's say, a ward with eight beds. So what one may actually find is that if there's a limitation of a thousand rand per night, um, for your per diem, you may actually be in a situation where um, facilities start redesigning their facilities to, um, to accommodate um, these, um, these savings. Then case base. So case base would be for each case that comes in, irrespective of the number of days that you stay in hospital. So here, again, there would be an incentive for, to reduce um, inputs. There would may also be instances of unnecessarily hospitalizations and in particular um, readmissions. So if you're getting paid per case, every time you get readmitted, you may of course um, be paid an additional fee. So that is one of the aspects that one would need to look at. Looking at there may be an incentive to improve the efficiency of the input mix and reduce the length of stay. Um, there may also be incentives specifically within the facility um, setting to actually shift some of the rehabilitation outside of the hospital setting into the outpatient setting. And then of course um, cherry picking your, your uh, low acute cases. If we look at primary and outpatient healthcare, fee-for-service is generally applied. Here, the more you do, the more you get. So you get paid um, 150 Rand for a consultation. The more consultations you do, the more um, remuneration you get. So of course, that incentive would be in place. If there's a fee schedule, you may want to um, reduce your input costs. And this is really where a lot of the debate in the private sector with um, the National Department of Health has been going in terms of um, setting maximum prices. 
where in, for example, the South African situation where there's the absence of this fee schedule or maximum fee, there, um, there would, of course, be um, incentive to, to increase fees as high as possible. Specifically, if we look within the private medical schemes industry and with the legislation around prescribed minimum benefits, we're definitely seeing that um, some service providers are um, charging fees far in excess of um, NHRPL for those specific services. And then capitation. So capitation, and excuse me if I'm explaining this in too much detail, um, is is really a way you pay a fee for a particular service that is provided within certain protocols. So in essence, what you may do is you may, you may pay a fee over to an entity that can manage all your optometry benefits based on specific benefits that are outlined, the protocols aligned with those, and within that, um, the entire risk is passed over for those specific services to this entity. Within this, you may find improvement in the efficiency of the input mix, there, um, you may actually be able to attract additional enrollees. There would be an incentive to reduce your inputs. However, there, there may be a case where there's an under-provision of services, where there would be a limitation of services in order to increase the profit margin. There may be referrals to other providers. If the cases are too complex, there may be an incentive to, um, to push that out to another setting so that it doesn't fall within the, the pool of resources within the capitation fee. Um, and then there may be a focus on less expensive health promotion and prevention. And then salaries. This again um, is specific within the public sector where um, a salary is paid to professionals that work within those facilities. Um, currently there would be no incentive to um, increase your demand or induce demand as we, we're seeing within the fee-for-service model. Um, however, there may not be an incentive to reduce the waiting times. Now if I can move on to diagnostic-related groups. So a diagnostic-related group, um, if I can is, is based on the premise of working off um, very, very basic codes, which is ICD-10 codes, which is your International Classification for Disease System, which is very specific from a clinical perspective because it allows one to, to understand what um, in essence has been done at a facility level. If you take those, those ICD-10 codes, one of the challenges is given that there are so many, it is difficult to compare um, apples with apples and actually look at aspects from a case perspective. So what DRGs do is it looks at the body as a whole and classifies the body into broad systems or areas called major disease groups. So as an example, you would have your um, digestive system, your cardiovascular system. Within that, you would then have um, diagnostic-related groups, which then breaks that down further into specific systems within that system itself. What this allows one to do is to create far more homogeneous groups. One of the challenges we have with these reimbursement um, methodologies is, is that without having an alignment of interest, what ultimately would happen is one party would feel that they are being done under. So by, by being able to create far more homogeneous groups, you can align the interests, reduce the risks to both parties, and therefore um, create payment mechanisms that um, brings ac across this equity that we would want. Some of the advantages, which I've already started mentioning, is um, it is easier to operate because um, everyone has far more clarity. It's more specific and realistic on payments. Um, it does limit some of the opportunities of fraud. There may be a decrease in the average length of stay, which may drive um, efficiency. Um, overall improvement in the technical efficiency. Reduce the average cost of treatment. 
greater and simpler transparency, and then increased innovation, specifically within the disease management programs. Some of the challenges, it's very data intensive. Given that it is driven from an ICD-10 level and other specific information, for example, um, low birth weight and so forth, it's, it is so data intensive that if the data is not accurate, it will result in patients being classified into the wrong major disease group and the wrong um, DRG, which ultimately would result in comparing apples and pears, which is exactly what the DRG system is trying to, to avoid. It is therefore very time consuming for the doctor and uh, there is of course the risk of mistakes. There, is, um, there may be low quality of care to contain costs if you're getting a specific fee um, for a DRG category. More complex conditions in specialist hospitals may not allow you to be able to identify the complexities that would still occur that would drive that heterogeneity within that pool. What the DRGs do, which is, which is quite nice, is, is that if you take, for example, a tonsillectomy, a tonsillectomy isn't a tonsillectomy, isn't a tonsillectomy. So what it allows you to do is to break it up into three further categories where you're able to say, is this a basic tonsillectomy, in which case your, your costs are quite controllable. And then you would have a category for those patients who do have complications so that you can, you can model that and isolate those outliers. And then finally, there's those with comorbidities. So someone that has diabetic um, is a far more complicated patient to have their tonsils removed than, um, than a healthy individual with no comorbidities. So with the DRG system, it allows you to isolate those aspects to drive the homogeneity. There may be incentive to submit claims for non-existent cases and incentive to reject cases where the costs may exceed your reimbursement amount. And of course, th those challenges we've also seen within the capitation environment. If we look at fee-for-service, um, it is administratively a lot easier to, um, to put into place. However, there is very little incentive to um, maintain expen expenditure. There is an incentive to do more so you can get more. And this is unsustainable. If we look at the South African medical schemes environment, the increase in healthcare costs that we've seen um, over the last few years is driven by, by a number of factors, and Roseanne has touched on those, being the um, aging profile, the, the chronic profile, um, anti-selection, and so forth. But one of the the main challenges is also the need to do more for those individuals within that, within that group. So the increase in utilization through this fee-for-service model is inducing a lot of the healthcare inflation that we see. Some strategic interventions that can be applied to counter some of this is first of all combining fee-for-service with budgets. So as I mentioned earlier, that by combining some of these aspects, you can actually remove some of the negative aspects within a specific reimbursement model. You can adjust the fees to a specific level for services as, ex as exceeded, um, allow for co-payments, um, monitoring, and then competition between providers to improve quality. As an example, um, in Australia, within their pathology services, what they've introduced is a mechanism where after a certain number of tests that's on a requisition form, there's actually significant discounts that are applied. So that's a way in which one can reduce um, some of the negative as aspects of fee-for-service. Capitation is far easier to administer. Um, claims processing is therefore less um, intensive. And there's very little incentive to, to over-service. Revenues are quite predictable, both for the funder 
um, as well as for the provider of the services. Of course, it would need to be within the control of the provider of services to manage their risks and um, their protocols effectively. This emphasizes cost control, wellness, and prevention. And it therefore aligns the economic interests of physicians and hospitals where you're able to integrate them into a broad capitation arrangement. And it encourages the utilization of low-cost treatments, which may be sufficient. Some of the challenges within capitation is that it is um, maybe more difficult if the payments need to be adjusted for, for risk adjustment, which we know is, um, is necessary in order to consider the true cost of delivering the service. It may encourage underproduction, um, referrals and transfer to, um, of higher cases um, may, um, may be a result of this, and um, it may be difficult for patients with very complicated medical histories to get into these pools. Possible interventions um, to counter these is to look at monitoring utilization and occupancy rates. So if one has norms and standards aligned to each one of these services, one can do peer reviews in order to see why there are specific outliers and, and understand the drivers underlying those. One can also capitate groups of individual um, providers together in order to reduce the costs. And then one can encourage um, competition in order to encourage good quality healthcare. And one of the ways in which one can do this is to have integrated referral system or allow beneficiaries to enroll periodically with competing healthcare providers. And then, of course, um, the holy grail is linking it to a performance-based mechanism. Within South Africa, um, we mainly use a fee-for-service approach um, in our reimbursement methodologies. However, some medical schemes do provide a hybrid where they have incentive-designed payment structures. They've got aspects within that allow for budgets, global budgets, per diem rates, and so forth. However, it isn't as widely spread as fee-for-service. In the public sector, um, there is mainly um, the fixed salaries for the, for the professional fees, uh, which has a limitation to inducing demand. And, um, but unfortunately, with that does come um, the fact that healthcare professionals may not um, move patients along through the system as quickly as one would want. Within the green paper, um, there are two approaches considered, one for primary care and one for hospitals. Within primary care services, it, it has um, indicated that the, the approach that they would like to take is a risk-adjusted capitation um, system linked to a performance-based mechanism based on the population. And, and this is ultimately where one would want to go because it would allow the, um, through the risk-adjusted mechanism to allow the risks to be understand and each entity that's taking the various risks to be able to understand those and price for them, but then also linked to quality, so um, removing the negative aspects contained within the capitation system through the performance-based mechanisms. And then hospitals, um, they've indicated that um, global budgets would be considered. However, ultimately the move to DRGs um, would be looked at. Fee-for-service features um, within the South African environment. Um, most of the financial risk is borne by the purchasers and um, insurers. So here it would be um, the medical scheme members and the medical schemes themselves within the private context of the medical schemes environment. Um, so insurance will be the short-term risk. The, the risks provided to the um, service providers is quite limited. 
Um, however, if one looks at the system as a whole, it is not sustainable, which is why we think over time this risk will increase. And then, of course, the long-term financing is borne by, um, by the patients. Capitation features, um, there's more risk sharing that takes place. Um, providers bear the short-term risk, insurers bear the long-term risk. Insurers still bear, sorry, the purchasers still bear the ultimate risk of having to support the healthcare system. And um, even through the limited use of capitation, one can see that aggressive utilization management can reduce in a standard for producing low-cost services with still high-quality outcomes. So you can't come to an actuarial presentation without seeing a formula. This is, um, in essence, how one would calculate a capitation rate, which is looking at the estimated cost of providing the service. So here it would be the cost of labor, materials, um, capital expenditure. As, as an example, um, it would be the facilities such as renting a room or, or else purchasing the facility itself, and then staff such as receptionist and so forth. And then, of course, dividing that by the number of patients um, per provider. If we break that up even further, um, one can see that we would look at both severity as well as utilization within the formula itself, with severity being defined as the total claims cost divided by the number of claims, and your utilization being your number of claims divided by your exposure in years. So the fun part in um, introducing this, of course, is the, the risk adjustments. When introducing these risk adjustments, they must, of course, be done properly with aligning incentives, ensuring that everyone is on the same page and, and everyone realizes the approach that they're taking towards these risk adjustments, that it is aligned so appropriately that it does drive the positive incentives, incentives as well as having a, an alignment in terms of ensuring that cost, quality, and access is produced. It will limit gaming and then protect the risk-bearing entities. Other factors such as um, morbidity can be considered through using aspects such as age, gender, socioeconomic, class, and so forth. Some other non-clinical factors can also be considered. Um, these would include socioeconomic status, cultural circumstances, religions, and psychosocial factors. Some of these factors would be incorporated not necessarily as a direct risk adjustment factor, but more as proxies. Um, depending on the availability and accuracy of the data. If we look at some of these, first of all, from a, um, a, a demography point of view, age and sex is generally considered, um, except for Spain and the US Veterans Administration System, they don't actually use this. Ethnicity is also considered in some, in some places, such as New South Wales, and New Zealand has also introduced this within their risk classification specifically within capitation arrangements. Looking at employability and disability, so looking at the, the intercepts between your social security is important. So if we look at the South African context, um, we have entities such as the Road Accident Fund, we have the Department of Social Development, um, and then of course um, we have the pension funds, um, and then 
if we are, one had to introduce NHI, there's a, there's a number of aspects covered. If we just look at healthcare expenditure, the Road Accident Fund and the Department of Social Development actually covers or provides benefits for some of these, these healthcare um, aspects. So it would be important that there is an integration of that. So within this, um, and looking at this integration, it would be important to look at what are the drivers that drive some of the, the risk factors within these um, other funds. To give you some examples, um, the Dutch scheme specifically has five categories of employment that they look at, where they have employed, permanently sick, um, temporary, unable to work, unemployed, and pensioners. And then um, the Netherlands, the US Medicare, New Zealand, and so forth have also introduced these factors. Then if we look at geographical location, the reason why geographical location is important is it does drive the expenditure items that would go within the capitation arrangement. If we think back to the, the formula I showed earlier, the input cost or the estimated input cost would be important. So it's important to allow for, for those variations. But in addition to that, there's also the variation in need, such as if we take um, HIV AIDS and, and the cost associated in delivering those services, we know that um, KwaZulu-Natal has a much higher um, HIV AIDS prevalence in the rest of the country. So understanding that dynamic in itself um, is important when um, allowing for these factors. Variations in the centre need, which is needed to express in the form of utilisation. So here, if you are a previously uncovered individual, your demand for healthcare services, all else being equal, may be lower than that of someone that has had access to these services before. And then, of course, variation in the local healthcare supply and demand. The US Medicare system adjusts on the basis of average healthcare costs by county of residence. Um, the Dutch system adjusts based on five categories of utilization where there is an adjustment factor of up to minus 11 for rural areas and up to plus 18 for very urban areas. Finland has also got this in place as does New Zealand. Other schemes such as Scotland, Wales and North Ireland also make adjustments for the higher costs of delivering community health and ambulance services. And then um, in England um, and in New South Wales they also introduce um, such aspects. If we look at morbidity and mortality, specifically um, looking at mortality we can see that there's a number of um, countries and areas that have actually introduced this. Um, specifically with mortality, this, this may again be more of a proxy than a risk factor itself. So as an example is that when trying to classify the costs associated with delivering a particular disease, what you may need to do is allow for disease staging, so, which we know is a, is a very, very complex task. And given that this will be performed at a national level, the access and accuracy of information would be so important. So by being able to use mortality, you may be able to identify some of the aspects that are driving the, um, um, sorry, that, that would be driving the disease staging resulting in mortality, higher levels of mortality in one area relative to another. Morbidity, this used in Belgium, Finland, Netherlands and the US Medicare. The Northern Ireland formula also considers low birth weight. As I mentioned earlier, DRGs also consider this. And then if we look at the US Medicare um, choice system, they look at a principal inpatient diagnostic cost group, which considers 
the um, severity of inpatients' diagnosis experienced the highest level of diagnosis experienced in the previous 12 months. So this again gives you a proxy of the type of patient you're looking at and therefore the likely costs that would be anticipated in delivering services to this individual. Other social factors are considered such as employment, education, family structure, housing quality, um, tenure and, and so forth and, and even income. If we look at the some of the anecdotal evidence within the South African environment, um, we can see that these, these aspects that drive um, health quality and, and health costs may not necessarily be related to the individual itself, but rather than the surrounding circumstances and the context in which the, the service is delivered. So as an example is that if you have um, a very low income individual um, accessing healthcare benefits, they may not have the facilities at home to um, to care for them, in which case you may find that their, um, their average length of stay might be longer than that of um, a higher income individual. So this is a very busy <laughs> <laughs> very busy table, and it's for all intended purposes. Don't worry, I'm not going to be taking you through each item. This is just to give you a sense of the complexity um, and the variations that is introduced um, across uh, across the globe. As you can see um, on the um, for each one of the lines, we have a different country. We then look at the schemes that they have introduced. We look at the plans, um, how. Um, the risk adjustment has, um, has occurred at an individual level, at a plan level, and the other factors that are considered. Some of the interesting ones to consider is things such as um, tax income base, as mentioned by Roseanne, that is some of the things that um, National Treasury and the Department of Health are looking at in terms of differentiation, in terms of in terms of risk categorization. And when looking at, at other, um, other factors, such as um, your location of healthcare delivery, this isn't new to us. We, we have this within the South African context already. If we look at the, the um, salary profiles to the occupation-specific dispensation applied within the public sector, there's already a component called a rural allowance that is applied to individuals that um, work in certain inhospitable areas. Um, and it, it, is, um, it is applied to their base salary in order to take account for the, some of the challenges that they may experience in working in those specific areas. Ideally, where do you want to be? Um, one would like to have a system that is administered and, in audit, and audited in a transparent manner. If there isn't trust and, and clarity between parties, it makes this very difficult. There needs to be accountability between all parties, promotion of the stability of all parties. It needs to allow the provider to obtain the financial benefits of the investment in care management. It needs to align the insurance risk to the payer and clinical risks to the healthcare providers. This allows one to be able to differentiate between the different risks and put it in the, um, in the area that can best be controlled by the entity involved. Then they need to be rewarded for high quality care. Overall, what we need is a sustainable system. And by being able to introduce this, one can um, hopefully come to something that is achievable and equi equitable for all entities. If we look at the, the green paper again, um, having a risk-adjusted capitation system linked to a performance-based uh, mechanism based on the population is, is ultimately where we want to go, given that fee-for-service is, is not feasible in the long run. As Roseanne mentioned earlier, is at this point, um, um, we would like to 
get your thoughts around um, some of the questions that we have, and hopefully at the end of the session we, we can come back to these. Firstly, I mean, given the challenges within all the reimbursement mechanisms we've looked at, both positive, negative, um, some of the aspects that we'd have to consider is how will capitation look like in South Africa? Where will the data for the modeling come from? Um, what factors need to be used for risk adjustment and what is reasonable? How can capitation be incorporated into the model? And specifically looking at the district case, how will service providers react to capitation? How will capitation vary from different service providers? Will capitation be purchased in or be part of a hybrid system? How will we balance capitation with clinical outcomes, specifically looking at quality of care? And is performance-related reimbursement um, feasible for South Africa? I'd now like to hand over to Fatima, who's going to take us through some of the service delivery models. Thanks, Ashley, and thanks again for uh, everyone for being here today. Um, the section that I'll be doing is more on trying to obtain cost efficiencies through the actual service delivery practiced by healthcare professionals on the ground. So what can we do differently? What can our healthcare professionals do differently on the ground in delivering the services um, that may achieve um, cost efficiencies and therefore um, achieve overall cost efficiencies for the NHI model? This uh, first slide is a basic overview on the key factors affecting healthcare service delivery. So the factors that affect healthcare service delivery are social values and cultures. For example, in South Africa, we're seeing a lot of our people moving away from allopathic medication, more to holistic medication. How are those impacts going to affect service delivery within South Africa and what are the impacts on costing that? Um, global influences, immigration, trade and travel, terrorism, epidemics, those factors have a direct influence in healthcare service delivery within South Africa. The population characteristics, which is well known to all of us, the demographic needs, the trends, um, how this is moving, how this is changing over time, the health needs of our population, our social morbidity and mortality, the AIDS, drugs, homicides, injuries, accidents, behavior-related diseases. Our physical environment also has an uh, important aspect to play within healthcare service delivery. So how is toxic waste and pollutants influencing, influencing the disease burdens and the changes in healthcare needs of our population? Technology developments, information systems, the collection and gathering of healthcare data, as well as medical technology. How do medical advancements um, influence healthcare service delivery. So a new technology that will improve uh, the way in which we do cardiac bypasses, for example, or, or anything, and how that influences mortality and morbidity going forward. Economic conditions, general economic environment, which again is quite well known to us all around this room. Political climate, the laws and regulations specifically. So how is the pri private sector regulated? How is our pharmaceutical industry regulated? How are healthcare professionals regulated, et cetera, all have a direct impact on the way healthcare service delivery is uh, deployed within South Africa. The three stages of the continuum of care can be divided into three um, divisions, so to speak, uh, curative, preventative, and restorative. We're seeing in the South African environment, in the private sector specifically, we are very curative-based, whereas in the public sector we should really be preventative. Um, this is the objective of the public sector, and we are seeing the trend in South Africa as well as globally that we're moving away from curative-based uh, healthcare service delivery into preventative-based. One such example is the redefining of the composition of the prescribed minimum benefits, which is uh, aiming to place a greater emphasis on primary care benefits and preventative care as opposed to hospital and specialist care. 
This is one such example of moving away from curative care to more preventative care methods. The, the table on this slide just basically shows delivery settings for the various levels of care, preventative care in public health programs, community programs, wellness programs, personal lifestyles, personal lifestyles primary care in a physician's office, self-care, alternative medication, specialized care in specialist provider clinics, etc. Again, an overview of the South African trends and directions in healthcare delivery. So in the past, we've been very focused on illness, acute care, inpatient, individual health. We have a lot of service duplication and fragmented care, whereas where we would like to see us going and where we are currently seeing us going is more to wellness, primary care, outpatient, community well-being, um, utilization of managed care services. We, we would like to move to more integrated systems of healthcare service delivery and obviously taking into account the full continuum of care services. Managed care, South Africa. In South Africa, the fragmentation and insufficient coherence in healthcare services has limited the efficiency and quality of care, as well as the health system's responsiveness to the needs of the population. We've tried solving this with managed care, but it has been met with much resistance. Medical schemes have encouraged and, and, and embraced managed care, some of them at least, while m most healthcare professionals have deemed the practices disruptive and inhibitive. The 2012 Annual Provider Medical Attitude Barometer Survey indicated that South Africa, as South African healthcare professionals believe that managed care has little to no impact on healthcare and financial outcomes. This is still something to be analyzed within our markets before we can come to any conclusive evidence. One such example of a managed care uh, delivery model is the intercare group model. Their strategic coordination of care has as we have been told, has been resulted in superior clinical and financial outcomes. So the way that Intercare works is basically a patient will walk in and um, the treatment protocols and the treatment plan is um, designed and decided upon by a group of healthcare professionals which include nurses, doctors and specialists. They are paid through a capitated payment and the treatment plan is um, is monitored and measured on an outcomes-based approach. So through the capitated payment and through the group treatment, group decided treatment plan, the financial incentive of capitation is generally avoided. Um, because it's uh, measured on an outcomes-based approach, the treatment plan is measured this way, it still manages to maintain an adequate um, quality of care and um, clinical outcomes and achieve uh, appropriate protocols. The intercare group has um, combined capitation along with uh, task sharing and task shifting. And um, whilst this may not be appropriate for all settings, I think the, the, frag the, the framework in which intercare deliveries delivers healthcare services is a, a good framework just to, just to highlight that there is ways in which we can still achieve acceptable protocols whilst um, maintaining cost efficiencies. So the intercare group has worked well in areas such as Santon, um, Edenvale, Centurion, etc. But the Soweto intercare approach uh, unfortunately didn't work very well, obviously because of the rural limitations within that approach. So these are the kind of aspects that we need to take into account when, when we start considering these changes to our healthcare service delivery model. What is applicable to South Africa? Where is it applicable? How is it applicable? How will, will it be met by resistance um, through laws and regulations, through political um, individuals? Will it also um, 
work well in certain areas and not well in other areas. So before we, we consider that this is the defined method, um, we obviously need to consider how we will address these within different environments in South Africa. One of the challenges that Intercare has uh, emphasized um, in developing this multidisciplinary practice approach are the ethical guidelines, the ethical rules by, um, as maintained by the HPCSA, unfortunately, um, limits the way in which group practices can be administrated. It makes the administration process quite on onerous because uh, group practices cannot be um, run across different healthcare professions. So for example, a nurse and a doctor cannot both be shareholders in the same group practice. It's, it's not allowed. Therefore, it limits the administration process. In the US, uh, they've also suffered primary health care demands and a, they also um, have a fragmented service delivery care uh, approach and they have managed to, to curb this uh, while maintaining low cost quality health care through the medical home model. This is a primary care practice that provides comprehensive care, actively engages patients in education and care delivery, offers enhanced patient access, coordinates patient care across the continuum. Health maintenance organizations in the U USA are basically um, entities that provide or arrange managed care services to health insurers, to self-insured individuals and self-insured uh, plans, etc., as well as individuals uh, on a prepaid basis. Uh, members essentially select a primary care physician who then acts as the gatekeeper to medical services. The primary care physician is then governed by the rules of the HMO. The HMOs provide a greater level of involvement with regards to patient care. This ensures that no two providers provide overlapping care and to ensure that the patient is receiving appropriate treatment. There's no conducive evidence that this has resulted in financial efficiencies. However, there is evidence that this has improved the um, quality of care and the protocols aligned with these, um, these, these types of models. Um, because the USA has experienced similar disease burdens and ex experienced similar challenges to South Africa, I think what's, imp what's important um, is maybe to just learn from these types of service delivery models and think about how we can implement them in our South African context and in our South African environment in order to obtain um, more efficient healthcare uh, service delivery. A significant driver of healthcare costs in South Africa are the growing increase of inappropriate upward performed procedures, especially in the private sector. So, for example, um, midwives are actually able, midwives and GPs are actually able to perform natural births. However, these are being done by gynecologists primarily in the private sector. Um, Similarly, hairline fractures can be actually consulted by GPs, whereas this is mainly by orthopedic sur surgeons. We in the private sector, when we have the flu, we go straight to our GP wears. We really should be going to a nurse for headaches, for the flu, et cetera, et cetera. And these are upward performed procedures which are not appropriate for those healthcare professionals in a sense that it drives the cost of the service. Task sharing and task shifting strategies to be Im implemented un under NHI is expected to control this by reducing the costs associated with patient treatment and hence overall decrease in the funding required for implementation of NHI if task movements are applied appropriately. There should be a significant impact on the capitation rates if this, um, if this is actually seen, these reductions on costs. However, given um, our supplier-driven market, um, it is expected that 
task shifting and task sharing and multidisciplinary approaches as well as different healthcare models are going to primarily have to be uh, driven by policy changes in legislation. Um, South Africa is going to determine its own explicit stance and policies on task sharing and task shifting. What is task sharing? Task sharing is essentially a, strate a strategy in which healthcare professionals share tasks. So in essence, for example, uh, midwives, doctors, and gynecologists will deliver babies in a natural birth, um, whereas it's not only precluded to gynecologists or just GPs, etc. Task shifting, however, is when it is directly shifted to a different healthcare professional. So when a GP will take over the natural births or the hairline fractures, etc., etc. Um, in Ethiopia, the provision of family planning has started to include emergency obstetric care as well as performing, performing tubal litigations. In Zambia, the provision of HIV services. Task shifting, in Uganda, Rwanda and Malawi, community health workers are now providing ART counseling and HIV testing. In Zambia and Swaziland, they have recently placed significant effort in shifting HIV services to other professions to re relieve the health care human resource burden and scale up treatment availability. I think given that um, within the African environment, we all experience the same challenges in terms of disease burdens, in terms of population, in terms of dynamics of our population, dynamics of our disease burdens, our supply side constraints, our demands um, in respect of our morbidity and mortality, etc. Um, and our rural urbanization splits and our economic constraints as well. Given that Zambia, countries close like Zambia and Swaziland, as well as Uganda, Rwanda and Malawi, they have started to implement these kind of strategies already. We can obviously learn from these countries and understand how they have implemented these and how these can be relevant and applicable to, to the South African context and how this can achieve cost um, efficiencies and, and reduce the capitation rates as a result under NHI. What do we need for task sharing and task shifting? An enabling regulatory environment for implementation whilst ensuring quality of care and sustainability. The organization of the clinical care services. Adopting, adapting and extending models that are best suited to the specific country situation. Implementation and training within efficient referral systems, including non-clinical health professionals in a chosen system incorporating task shifting and task sharing. There are places where task sharing may be appropriate um, rather than complete task shifting and it may be required more extensively initially due to resistance from some healthcare providers by, um, and healthcare professionals by shifting their tasks, there may be resistance through that, as well as the requirement to upskill um, certain healthcare professionals to be able to take on uh, differing duties. For example, um, the intercare group, they have uh, upskill their GPs to take on quite a lot of mental illnesses which are usually referred to up upwards to psychiatrists. So in South Africa currently we have inappropriate upward performed procedure procedures and high charges for simple procedures. We would like to move to a healthcare industry where different types and levels of healthcare professionals work in close teams towards achieving affordable quality healthcare. A healthcare industry where task sharing and task shifting are deeply entrenched in all healthcare systems and facilities is ideally where we should move to in the future. However, task sharing and task shifting is unlikely in isolation to solve the human resource problem with healthcare. 
we are going to need sub substantial amounts of investment in order to, to uh, produce more appropriate healthcare professionals in our environment. And this is going to have to be a collaboration of all our various key stakeholders, which include the government, healthcare professions and institutions, educators as well as the general public. What have we done to the NHI costing model as it stands with the Actuarial Society of South Africa? In, we <clears throat> initially, there were 19 health care professional types in the NHI costing model. We have now included in the model and expanded it to 103 healthcare professional types, which is um, consistent with the human resource for, uh, resources for health model, which is used by the Department of Health. This essentially includes all allied health professionals as well as community health workers, social workers, etc., which is more um, reflective of the public sector objective and needs that we need to implement within the NHI costing model. Um, these 103 healthcare professionals were then collapsed into 19 sensible groups, which resulted in minimal structural changes to the model. Hospital beds, we previously showed the total number of hospital beds based on less than 60 hospitals. We have updated for all hospital beds across all the hospitals and it is shown at a district level within the public sector. Um, in the private sector, the total number of hospital beds per district are provided, but it is not further split into national central hospitals, regional hospitals, provincial hospitals, etc. Task sharing and task shifting were incorporated in the model to provide added flexibility, which is likely to have an impact on demand for different services and hence utilization, as well as cost of services. So where an obstetrician, obstetrician usually assisted on the birth, and this was classified under the comprehensive package, if midwives are performing most births, this may now be a part of the primary healthcare package and the cost may be reduced dramatically for the population as a whole. Just to give you some interesting stats around this example, um, the World Health Organization standard for the number of percentage of births that should be caesarean uh, for, for a population is 15%. In the private sector, we are on 57% of births which are caesarean. In the, public, in the public sector, we are 17%. The cost of um, private sector caesarean births are anything from 30,000 upwards, anything. Whereas in the... Um, for, for natural births, it's, it's approximately 25,000. So if we just consider within the private sector, if we move away from having 57% 50, cesarean births moved more to natural births, to, uh, to more towards the standard of the World Health Organization, we, we are then already reducing costs. And from that, if we move a lot of that away from gynecologists to midwives and GPs, we will further be reducing costs. In 2011, we had, I think, around 1 million births within the private sector, and um, that already can demonstrate with a simple mathematical calculation what the cost savings could be. Some of the task-sharing instances that were taken into consideration in the model are shown in this table. So um, we have from pediatricians to GPs, gynecologists and obstetricians to professional nurses, anesthetists to GPs, etc. The percentage shift is an adjustable amount. Um, essentially, it means that 10% of uh, the work provided by GPs will be shifted to pediatricians, etc. We can backward shift, the model allows for it. So for example, if you would like to take 10% of pedi pediatrics um, to GPs, you can negative 10% it. Um, and at this stage, these percentage shifts are not um, defined in uh, 
as, as per clinical protocol. So we, at this stage, we actually still need to collabor collaborate with the healthcare professionals to understand how this, will, how this is possible and what percentage uh, shift is actually realistic within our environment. I will hand over back to Roseanne for any questions. Thanks, guys. Um, so now the floor is yours in terms of, I'm just going to go back to um, Ashley's slide with all the questions because um, hopefully it's going to be the case that you give us the answers and uh, we ask you the questions. Have I got there yet? There. Any questions, comments? Thanks so much for that uh, wonderful presentation. Um, what I want to check on the, on the supply mechanisms is um, do we have an understanding of how the supply, the different supply options that we have will impact the gaps that we emanate from the, from the specific choice that we pick and the, the gap that, that emanates in the, in the market? When you say the gap, just clarify what you um, mean by the, the gap. The coverage gap. I mean, I'm, I'm basically saying if, if you choose a particular method of, um, of supplying um, the supplies, what would be the impact on the coverage um, to, the, to the overall population? Okay, so, so the, way that, um, the way that the model worked previously, I hope I'm answering your question, is that, um, is that we, what we said was in terms of a covered population, there was a certain number of services that they were therefore required in order to treat that particular population. And then we looked at the supply side and we said, well, in terms of the current capacity, there's a certain number of services that can be provided within the constraint of the current supply. So that suggests that, for example, 80% can be met, and so there's a 20% supply side constraint. So what we are factoring in now through, through this um, looking at alternative delivery mechanisms is to say, well, now, instead of saying that those services necessarily have to be provided by a particular supplier, that if you change the delivery model, that it might mean that, first, first of all, you need less services because there's less duplication in the system and also through the use of, of, of technology. And then because perhaps you're using lower levels of, um, of service providers where there might be a greater supply, then that um, reduction or constraint is, is then lessened. Is that, does that answer your question? Anyone else? The different reimbursement mechanisms kind of have their own pros and cons, but is there a way of kind of optimizing the situation by, by kind of having a mixture of them? So like, you know, a layer of capitation with DRGs and, and so on. Do you want to address that? Should I start and then you can come and address it too? Um, thanks, Simon. Yeah, that's a very valid point, and it's certainly something that, um, that, that has become very clear in the course of this research, that it's not a question that you can say, well, capitation is the answer, or, you know, DRG-based groups is the answer, because um, the, the, the pros and cons are, are, are different at the different levels of care. So... The, the problem, of course, in the complexity is the interaction, that as you move from one level of care to the next, if the incentives and structures are different, then you can, you can actually have a disconnect. Um, so that, that's something that, that needs to be taken into account. But certainly at different levels of care, um, different reimbursement structures seem to be appropriate. And even as uh, Fatima emphasized in her presentation, at, um, at almost the different points of distribution. So what might work for primary care reimbursement in an urban environment might be different in a, in, a, in a rural environment. Ashley, would you like to add to that? Thank you for the question, Simon. I think you, you're 100% correct. I mean, if we just go back to the definition that's, that's on the screen, um, outlined by the Green Paper, it's a risk-adjusted capitation system linked to performance-based mechanism. I mean, taking this at a very high level, within this 
um, this um, this outline reimbursement mechanism, you would be able to um, allow for a lot of the aspects that are that would be driving some of the costs and therefore aligning interests between parties. So. Some of the advantages of DRGs is it allows you to create more homogeneous groups. So one could use that as a mechanism to be able to risk classify your groups and then on top of that apply capitation and then link that um, into a um, even a, a fee-based system, so a um, fee-for-service system which then has a tiered system. So you can actually incorporate three or four or five different components within the way in which you categorize risk and therefore um, pay your providers. And within this context, um, as Rosanna has, has highlighted, is understanding the way in which our system works is important. Um, looking at it from a very broad level can, uh, can cause a, a number of anomalies. So ultimately, given the fact that we want to increase access, reduce cost, and improve quality, it's important that we understand the unintended cost consequences of introducing some of these, some of these models. So as an instance is that um, even even within our current environment, as, as new technology comes in, what you may find is that um, in certain areas you would have a reduction in the um, uh, in the number of hospital days, but actually an increase in the number of admissions into hospital um, through the use of some technology. Now, how does your reimbursement mechanism apply within that context? compared to other service provisions. So taking each one in isolation, understanding the challenges, the way in which it's developed, and then finding ways that you align interests and minds. Because until providers and funders are on the same page in terms of not feeling that they're being undermined in any way or um, their livelihood is being compromised, I think it's very, very difficult to build trust within the system. And that's ultimately what you would want from a um, reimbursement system. Uh, thanks for the presentation. I just want to ask, uh, the, as, as the phasing in happens, uh, how does the role of uh, private providers, i.e. actual professionals as well as uh, hospital groups, how does that change? Does phasing in mean more uh, public and less private or private within public? You know? So how, does that, how do you guys see that change? Of course, I'm sure you don't have the answer, but you know, how, your speculation on that. Yeah, I guess it is speculation because I guess that's the ultimate, the ultimate question because it's really a, a question of how that purchasing mechanism evolves. So um, if, for example, it evolves through, say, using the medical schemes as a multiplayer model and, um, and, and bringing more lives into that system, then it's, it's, it's evolving from the private sector side. But if it's through the, um, the current pilot site structure where you are um, up resourcing in the, in, the, in the public sector to, to provide greater access, then that sort of that meeting in the middle is, is driven from the public sector side. So I think, I mean, my view is that the best way to go would be to, to, to use the medical scheme framework and, um, and the regulatory changes which, um, which have been suggested here to, to actually then push it from the making better use of the resources that we have in the, in the private sector. And then that will also free up public sector resources to, to enable this development and, um, and enhancement. Does that kind of answer in a very speculative way? Ashley, add in. Maybe just to add one point, um, is that in order for us to introduce NHI within the South African environment, the, the one point of consensus is that 
we need all service providers, both public and private, to be able to deliver on our healthcare needs. So the accreditation and incorporation of the public sector, of, sorry, of the private sector, is vital for the delivery of NHI, which is why within the Green Paper it actually outlines the accreditation of both public and private facilities um, in order to deliver on these services. Good. Any, anything else? Okay, well then it remains for me to thank you all for your attendance and also to thank um, Old Mutual for their hospitality, which extends to um, drinks and snacks at the back, which is why I'm sure you're not asking any more questions. So, um, so thanks very much for your attendance and the presentation will be hopefully available on the website as well. Thanks.